Peace, everyone. Peace, everybody. Um, thank you for so much for uh, listening to the last episode. Heard a lot of good feedback on it, especially the one with Peru um, from the uh, Black Alliance for Peace um, Coalition. Um, and we're going to continue to carry on these conversations just as much as we can with music, politics, and culture as all times. Um, I have a very special guest, a return E, here on the Unsavory uh, Politic uh, segment of the Jabari Bach podcast. And you know him, his very familiar face, uh, Matthew Ho. Hey, Jamar. Good going? to see you. Hey, Jamar. Good to see you, brother. Um, Again, um, so people don't, so people have a grasp. You were also a part of the Marines, and then you also were a part of the Pentagon, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had a, a few different experiences. Yeah, I was an officer in the Marine Corps. I was a civilian official at the Defense Department. I was also a political officer with the State Department as well. So I uh, had, uh, you know, a variety of experiences that. Uh, you know, I saw things at different levels, which I'm grateful for in, in, in a way because it allowed me to see things um, from various perspectives, various vantage points. Uh, you know, I got an appreciation for what was occurring uh, at senior levels, at lower levels, at strategic levels, at tactical levels, uh, however you want to describe it. Um, and it, it did inform me, I think, more fully of what the wars were were like and are like in a way that many of my peers did not have because they are often only at one level. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, were you able to meet with uh, Scott Ritter at any some point? Just curious. No, I mean, like I, I, I've only met Scott through uh, this type of thing, through platforms like this, e emails, mm -hmm. uh, and only know him uh, through his activism and his, in his work, uh, currently, uh, you know, I, I knew who he was 20 years ago, uh, right. you know, when he was opposing, but, but I did not know him. And then I didn't know him until, Oh, the last several years, probably. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cause um, here we are at the behest, um, in the big, like a huge part of, uh, both of you guys careers. Um, we last week was the actually was it this it was this week this week was the anniversary of the war in Iraq, mm -hmm. um, and we we see how for instance um, I covered earlier about how the ICC decided to uh, you know release this warrant towards Putin to, or during the time of the anniversary of the war in Iraq, and uh, immediately the progressives and the socialists were like whoa 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 Bush. Guys, before we even talk about anything, Bush literally started this war as a vendetta um, to to finish his father's business. If if I'm correct, right? Well, you, right, well, I don't put a lot of faith in that. I think that might have been an idea that was floating around in the back of some people's heads, but uh, certainly uh, the Iraq War was a war uh, uh, was an invasion. Uh, on lies. It was an occupation that was based on lies. Uh, there were many motives, uh, none of them good. You know, all were insidious and nefarious and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, for reasons of megalomania, greed, uh, you know, both institutional and personal. Uh, you know, so there were a host of reasons for the invasion in 2003, uh, again, all of which were, were, were uh, you know, 
worthy of being indicted for a crime by the ICC. Uh, of course, though, the United States is not a party to the ICC, just as Russia is not, just as right. Ukraine is not. Um, and just as Russia said the other day that they would destroy The Hague with a missile strike, uh, the United States has as law in 2002, uh, the United States Congress passed a law authorizing military force against the International Criminal Court if any American were ever held by it. Right. Uh, and then famously, if people remember several years ago when the ICC uh, began the process of investigating American war crimes in Afghanistan, uh, the Trump administration sanctioned members of the ICC. Uh, the Biden administration dropped those sanctions, but they have made clear that they will not participate with the ICC and that the United States is not falling into the jurisdiction. So this whole celebration of Putin being indicted uh, by the ICC, which I, I hey, I'm totally in favor for, you know, I'm completely in favor of that. But the celebration coming from the U.S. side uh, is extremely hypocritical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. I think it's I think it's just a funny thing, and especially what Biden talked about it as the first thing he said that they're not legitimate to him. So that gives you an idea exactly how the yeah. U.S. actually sees the ICC, and and it's the little things, the little parts, because Biden has a way of actually like telling a truth, but in a <laughs> nonchalant way like that, um, which Accident, I'm starting right, to accidentally let it slip out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I don't think he intentionally notices what he's doing at this point, right. but it's cool right. to me because it gives me an idea of what's really going on. So I know you weren't there at the time when the Trump administration decided to uh, go after the ICC for trying to uh, get Bush. Um, but why did you think that the Trump administration decided to do that? Because they were the Trump administration, well, Trump himself was actually using the war in Iraq and other wars that we effed up on as a, a reason to get him elected. <clears throat> right. Well, I think there's, there's right. two reasons. There's two reasons for it. I'm going to put my headphones in and get some feedback. Yep. Uh, the, um, oops, sorry. Everything's tangled up on my desk here. My phone cord. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really just two cords on my desk and some this and my phone cord. And somehow I'm able to get it completely tangled. Um, <laughs> OK, hang on a second. Yep. OK, um, so I think there's two things that go into that. Uh, one, it, it, it ties back to one of the reasons for the Iraq war. Uh, amongst the neocons, uh, not limited to the neoconservatives, but certainly one of the the driving impulses is that the United States is the world's sole superpower, uh, that it is the hegemon, that there is uh, no, nothing outside of our unipolar, this this unipolar authority that we have that should be able to challenge us. And that in many ways, I think, was uh, one of the foundational uh, reasons for the Iraq invasion in 2003 was that many of these neoconservatives, and there are other reasons too, but many of them felt that we needed to clearly show, we, the United States, needed to clearly show that we were the world superpower, that there was no other authority by, than us. And so after the 9-11 attacks, after what they felt was Saddam Hussein snubbing 
their nose at the United States and, and other things. They had to assert their authority by destroying Iraq, right? Someone gets out of line, you smack them down kind of attitude. I think that was has much to do with uh, Trump's sanctions against the ICC amongst in his administration, that feeling like no one can challenge us. No one is more supreme than us. There is no sovereignty that we have to bend the knee to. And who is the ICC to challenge us in this way, to contest us, to say they're going to investigate us? You know, so th I think that was one reason. But then there is just blank, just just uh, clear uh, self-interest in, in, in a sense of of protecting themselves. Because I, I think uh, both individually and institutionally, uh, the members of the Trump administration realized the danger, the real danger, because war crimes have been committed. And yeah. they did not want, at the very least, their names and their institutions being besmirched by an indictment by the ICC. The other thing, too, is that Unlike Russia, where Putin may say, you know what, I'm not going to be traveling to Western Europe. I'm not traveling a place that's not friendly to me. I'm not worried about someone trying to arrest me because they are a member of the ICC and, and, and they are going to arrest me. Um, you know, I think many members of the Trump administration were scared to death at that prospect, that this would limit where they would be able to go if, if there were arrest warrants for Mike Pompeo or John Bolton or, or, or you know, uh, any any American official, they did not want to see any of them get arrested, let alone themselves get arrested. So I think there was a degree of, of, of self-preservation, of uh, self-protection that was going on with the Trump administration. So I think those are the two things that really motivated uh, those sanctions was, you know, how dare they challenge the authority of the United States you know, so it they also too remember, these are these are men and women, their worldview. They are not friendly to international law. They are not friendly to international conventions and treaties. They are not friendly to the United Nations. They don't like those concepts. They prefer and you hear this administration as well says they prefer the rules based order, which is a much more fungible, liquid, not really clear, not 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 definitively defined uh, set of statutes and regulations and right in laws like international law is rules-based order kind of means as I think many of them think it means that whoever is the most powerful makes the rules right whoever the hegemon mm -hmm. is whoever right in, in this unipolar world we make the rules and so that with the ICC something like that threatens them you know so uh, you know and this is the thing that really worries me because I think most people uh, understand that we are heading, if we're not already in a multipolar world, and certainly we'll talk about Russia and China and some other things, but certainly we're not in a multipolar world already, we are heading into that. And if the United yeah. States acted these last 20, 30 years since the end of the Cold War, uh, these last 30 years as it has, where it has gone around the planet destroying entire nations and societies because it felt threatened as the world's only superpower, how is it going to react when it is no longer that, when it is in a multipolar world? So it, it was the United States has been so destructive, right? So aggressive in a unipolar world because it felt threatened. How is it going to act when it actually is in a multipolar world? And that's something that really worries me. And, you know, um, that worries me just as much as well, too, Matthew, um, because when we look at how 
the ripper like like how uh they want to fund japan to become a world power again militarily again um the 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 military uh exercises that are happening between south korea and the, U- the u.s which is like a mock invasion which i find very very disgusting that they can openly have mock invasion practices and no one is questioning it because it's the u.s and it shows the fear because if they were as powerful as they was in the past, they wouldn't need Germany or not, or Japan or any other country to to show their aggression. You know, Australia will automatically back them twenty four seven. You see Norway always doing everything they ask for. No, um, so it shows just how afraid they are because there's we're literally leading into a, a world that is no longer going to be U.S. led, which me as a socialist, I'm very happy about that. Right. But I also right. know that a multipolar world um, should be a multipolar world for the working class, not just for these powerful governments. That's my other criticism of a multipolar world. But I usher in a multipolar world at this at this point, but I hope it becomes a working class multipolar world to become a, a true multipolar world in my in my opinion. <laughs> right. You know, and then right. I, I completely agree with you. The idea of a multipolar world that is uh, a, a one of competing governments run by oligarchs and plutocrats, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's very uh, unsavory uh, to use the, the the word, right? You know, uh, it it is something that is 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 what not just that; it's also very dangerous. I mean, that type of of uh, adversarial uh, clash, uh, the 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 competition, to to put it uh, uh, politely, uh, right, between uh, these nations, uh, always on the brink of violence, always on uh, the, the the cusp. Of, of 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 battle basically, uh, and then the dangers of escalation, uh, you know, uh, are always always there, uh, you know. I mean, and so as we move forward with this, and as we see the United States being challenged uh, by competitors, uh, by adversaries, in a way that they have not been for you know uh, more than a generation for thirty years. Um, and then again, going back and well, how did how did the United States act when it was being when it, when it perceived itself as being challenged by these nations that had, uh, you know, uh, uh, GDPs that were mere percentage points of what the United States was that didn't have armies that that right had, were, were uh, uh, developing, uh, you know, uh, industries and infrastructure and, and, you know, absolutely no challenge, no threat, no competition at all to the United States. How did the United States mm-hmm. react still? And we went throughout the greater Middle East, throughout the Muslim world, stomping through it, destroying entire nations and societies, uh, causing mass, mass suffering to tens and tens of millions of people that is still ongoing. Uh, so, I mean, it is, it's, we're, we're, how, how are the Americans going to act when they actually have real peers that are standing up to them um, as they continue to get weaker? That's the other thing, too. The United States, you know, particularly through the 90s, grew stronger uh, and we, we were the world superpower. And then because of our own decisions, we have increasingly grown weaker uh, you know, very much become a, a hollower, 
economy. Certainly that didn't begin, you know, the last two decades that begins decades ago with financialization and neoliberal neoliberal policies. However, you really start to see the effect of that, I feel, in the last 20 years or so. Uh, and that put that out alongside. So a weakening United States uh, uh, with uh, peers, what they didn't have before, and how does the United States react? Yeah, yeah. And another another point, just on that, um, for the audiences listening, like the sabotage in North Stream Pipeline, you know, Cy Hirsch, who was a very accredited journalist, um, did his due diligence to reveal the truth on this. And you can automatically see how the West, uh, in particular, the U.S. in the West is, is freaking out. Um, Cy Hirsch has mentioned that he has been given hundreds of interview opportunities in Europe because, of course, Europe is very, very, very interested and what really went down here and why we see all these investigations led by these European governments. But the U.S. refuses to do their own um, leading and lead to lead an investigation. And also our Western media here doesn't even want to question why the U.S. doesn't want to investigate. Now, you last year were on my show, um, not on the Unsavory Politic, of course, this is a new show, but on the Jabari Bach podcast, um, you were on my show and you talked about how oil is a big deal in competitive sea between Russia and the U.S., and particularly between the U.S. Angela Merkel, who was the chancellor that I said that had the cojones to be a real leader compared to who they have now in Germany, um, told Biden before she left that that, that pipeline is happening. Uh, we are going to keep relations with Russia and we're going to build that pipeline with Russia. And there's nothing you can do about it. But here we have an administration in Germany that is actually against that pipeline, which is what I'm reading. And it's it's just so interesting how the U.S. just keeps coming up with all sense as reasons of what really went down. But authority enforcement to protect uh, these gas this gas pipe. Why why are people like leaving that? It was just like some rogue Ukrainians that were able to do this. Like it just makes no absolutely sense. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I yeah. think just on it uh, merits the um, the idea that it was a couple of people on off of off of a party yacht or something like that that did this. Dove right. two hundred and fifty meters right, penetrated uh, concrete reinforced pipeline. Uh, you know, I mean, just the uh, the technical aspects of it. Even people who don't dive understand. Like I don't dive, but I understand how difficult that must have been. Um, I was a, uh, I did a lot of work with explosives in the Marine Corps. And, and I can tell you that would not be easy. Uh, and it's just not a question of swimming up and down with handfuls of explosives. So I don't know how you get all the equipment onto a yacht. I mean, like, so just on the face of it, the, um, uh, the uh, story that's being told in corporate media and establishment media in places like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or, or what have you, uh, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, meanwhile, you know, I mean, and I saw a, 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 a camera or someone sent me a, a tweet or it was a, a text message, you know, and the, the list of who could do something like that, who's capable of that. The U.S. Navy. Right. That's it. That's the list. There might not be any other Navy that could do that in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, so 
but the willingness of the media to uh, barely note Cy Hirsch's uh, story. And it's important that before last week, when the major media outlets came forward with this story about how it was this uh, rogue operation done by six private citizens on this yacht. And, you know, they were pro they were a pro Ukraine group or whatever they described them before that they had. I don't think any of those outlets had mentioned Hirsch or his story or any of, of the things that were exposed by that at all. And, uh, you know, and, and since uh, I believe like the way the New York Times has handled it has been very late in their own stories, deep down paragraph wise, uh, they'll mention Hirsch, but it'll be almost in passing. It certainly won't provide any details and it'll be so laden with a degree of skepticism, uh, whereas they're mentioning Hirsch to contrast his story with their story simply to dismiss Hirsch's story. Right. So, uh, I mean, right. I mean, so like, but Hirsch, uh, uh, you know, his expose, I think rings true to a lot of people because of the details he provides the specifications. It makes sense. Most importantly, who had the reason to do it, who benefited from it. And certainly it was the Americans and, a host of different, um, a host of different uh, uh, reasons for how and why they benefited. But you know, as we talked about last year, certainly uh, the uh, who is going to dominate the European energy market has been a thing of contention for for decades now, basically. Uh, but right. really, in the last 12, 13 years, with the success of fracking in the United States, in terms of opening up a lot more oil and gas reserves for domestic production or domestic extraction by the U.S. and then making those available for export to the point that the United States is now the world's largest liquid natural gas exporter. Uh, you know, I mean, and you can see that whole development. And if you go to you look at the charts of it and everything, and there's almost nothing, I don't want to say almost nothing, but relative to now, very little 12 years ago. And even still, there. even more importantly, there were very little uh, export facility, right? Export terminals where they can put these, uh, where they go through the process of getting the gas onto a ship so they could take it overseas. You know, I mean, that's all been in the last decade. And that explains a lot of the uh, animosity, the, uh, uh, the, the rancor, the hostility between the U.S. and Russia over this last decade. If people remember, uh, go back to uh, early fall uh, 2012, uh, Mitt Romney is debating President Barack Obama uh, in, a, in one of the debates. Uh, the moderator asked a question along the lines of, who do you see as the U.S.'s biggest adversary? And Romney says Russia. And Obama, President Obama mocks him, mocks him. But within uh, six months, uh, you had uh, an increase of filings for the construction of these export terminals or expansion of the export terminals. Big one, you know, up the coastline from me here in Cove Point, Virginia, by uh, Dominion Power. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, you, you know, four or five billion dollars Dominion invested in that. I mean, so there was this industrial effort to increase our liquid national gas export aimed at Europe. 
And people remember Donald Trump got into a very nasty argument with Angela Merkel because the, yep. he accused the Germans of not doing their part, of not building their port facilities fast enough to receive our LNG ships, right? To receive our LNG exports. And of course, shipping something by sea versus shipping something by pipeline, you're going to save a lot more money purchasing it from the person sending it to from the pipeline. I mean, sending it by ship is much more expensive. So economically it made a right. lot more sense for the Germans, everything else. But the United States, the, this, the, the commercial aspects of this, and this is why this is the war in Ukraine, is a very, very dirty war. Uh, you know, and the Russians have their role as well because they they want to sell. Right. So it really becomes this this battle in many ways over uh, who is going to sell energy to Europe um, and Ukraine, of course, being the battlefield for it, even though it's not they're not the ones who are consuming that energy. Right. We're talking real about Western Europe here. We're talking about Germany and uh, Holland and Belgium, France, you know, I mean, so uh, particularly Germany, though. And, uh, you know, I mean, so that understanding of how important the energy markets of Western Europe are uh, really uh, helps explain the timeline and the pathway to war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like just like scholars, uh, not scholars, uh, people before you that have talked about this. It, it 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 it's it's a running thing of why we invade in the first place. It's a huge running thing, you know. There's a lot of factors that goes into why we want to be in Syria and all this stuff like that. But what goes down to the end of it is we're occupying illegally East Syria so we can have their grain and oil. That's what it goes down to, and. No matter what people feel about with Assad, which I don't want to get into because I don't need the emails ever again. <laughs> no matter what people feel about Assad, the fact of the matter is that the United States gets to occupy land of resources and control it, just like we did in Afghanistan, just like we did in, our, in um, Iraq. Um, we're holding Afghanistan's money while their children are starving. So it's it's very important to understand that what is the true end game that they want you to just automatically and don't get me wrong. Look, I have a lot of issues with Putin. I do. And I get mad when they call him a socialist. He's not. The fact that they even call that man a socialist is just insane to me. But that just that's the lack of reading in America. But anyway, um, I just think that the villainization is profitable because they are making money and that's something that we have to be very clear about in my opinion because if they are out there they're not out there to say oh we care about the ukrainians or the russo ukrainians and they're and what they're going through no you you toppled that kiev regime government just so you can make money just like how you got Russia into invading, which they were wrong to invade, just so you could make money. And now you now Germany loses $50 billion and their economy is crashing over a pipeline that you didn't want in the first place. But you're not German. How dare you get to dictate what happens to the German people? But you want to make money. And now you got what you want. Four times the price. There you go, Europe. You want to pay four times the price of oil gas, of, of oil gas to the United States and, and just literally get raped, excuse my French, but literally get raped economically. 
That's your choice. And the working class, as we see, is not agreeing with that at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's worse. <laughs> the Europeans, uh, of course, just energy price wise, because they don't have uh, this next winter. They're not going to have the, the gas reserves that they had going into last winter. Pro may or may not. I don't know with climate change, but may or may not have such a warm and mild winter as they had this year. So they didn't have to use as much. But then also, too, I don't know if there's going to be the political will in European capitals to provide the hundreds of billions of euros in subsidies to keep prices down. I mean, this cost Europe, uh, uh, I think, I mean, it's got to be close to a trillion dollars, you know, particularly right. the, 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 excuse me, the, the massive, massive subsidies their governments had to put up in order to control right. uh, energy, uh, energy costs, costs. Uh, you know, uh, I don't mean so what they're going into, uh, but the, um, you know, what you said there about Syria, and I'm really glad you, 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 you put it parallel with Afghanistan, because I, I don't know how much uh, money, uh, you know, is being made off of the control of the Syrian and the, uh, off the steer off, off of the Syrian and the, uh, uh, oil fields and, and, and grain fields. Like, I don't know how, I don't think it's that much. Right. But what it does is it punishes the Syrian people. Right. In the same way that we're not making much, any money off of holding on to the Afghan government's reserves. Right. But we are punishing them, you know? So I, I don't think it's so much as within Syria, the case of us taking it for our purposes, it, but keeping it from ha them having it. Uh, I think that's the, that's the main goal with it. Um, preclude anything other than military victory. And that certainly was the case in Afghanistan. There was plenty of options to negotiate with the Taliban for 20 years, not just immediately after the American invasion of Afghanistan, but in the years and years after, there were plenty of opportunities for the Taliban for to negotiate with the Taliban, and the United States refused them until the very, very end. Uh, and then, of course, at that point, the Taliban had won. Uh, same thing occurred in Libya, uh, efforts by, there was Norwegian, uh, Norwegian team in Libya in the spring of 2011, trying to negotiate. They were pulled out. NATO began bombing. One of Gaddafi's sons made an effort with the Department of Defense to negotiate. The Department of Defense had to tell him very bluntly, you can't talk to us. We're not in charge. The State Department's in charge and they don't want to negotiate. Same thing in Syria, 2012, 2013, the United States says very clearly one of the preconditions for the outcome of the talks is that Bashar Ashad needs to step down, right? So they dictate these terms where it's impossible for any negotiations to take place. So in Ukraine, when you, if you have terms such as you, there has to be war crimes trials for the Russians, uh, Russia has to give up Crimea. I mean, things that they were not going to agree to, you set that as a precondition, you never have a negotiation. But then you get to thump your chest and say, you're, it's, you're outraged how, how awful this is. They won't talk. It's, you know, we want to talk. And the, the whole thing is, and with Ukraine, it's really, uh, it, it has been so destructive because this is a war that didn't have to happen. You know, Russia did not have to invade. Uh, but this is a war that many in the West, in Washington, in London, in Kiev, wanted for a very long time. Um, but certainly if the Minsk II agreements have been honored, uh, if uh, the Russians have been spoken to in the late 
fall winter of 2021 when they presented uh, new terms for negotiation, basically returned to Minsk. And then, of course, as, as, as we know clearly, uh, at, uh, at the beginning of the war, uh, the Russians were in negotiations with the Ukrainians. Vla uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was, was saying things publicly about the opportunity of negotiations, about the process, about what the outcomes might be. Uh, we know from uh, Israeli, Turkish, American, and Ukrainian officials, including the former Israeli prime minister and the Turkish foreign minister, that the reason why those negotiations in late February, early March did not go forward, did not produce fruit, was because the Americans and the West, NATO, pulled the Ukrainians out of the negotiations. And so um, I, am, uh, I am not very hopeful about negotiations at this point. I know the Chinese uh, are eager for them potentially. Uh, I hope that they do pursue with that and hopefully they do make headway and do bring about an end to this war. But I think what happened was that you had the Russians attempting to negotiate. They were rebuffed. Uh, they have heard over and over again how they don't want to negotiate from the West when they've been trying to negotiate. And I think if you look at the Russian statements uh, and their actions since uh, the start of the war uh, through, say, February of this year, there was an openness to restart those negotiations that had been occurring in February, March of last year. However, I'm not so confident now because I've seen more and more statements from the Russians, including one last week from Peskov, the Kremlin spokesperson, who said very clearly that the Russians now see a military solution as the only way forward in Ukraine, which, uh, you know, is that just bluster or is, are they communicating clearly what their intentions are? Um, one thing I think you find with the Russians, like a lot of other nations outside of the United States and Europe, when they say something, they typically mean it. You know, when they communicate something as important as that, it's usually accurate. You know, they're usually not bluffing. Uh, so uh, perhaps that was an overstatement. Perhaps that was just a way to try and, uh, you know, I'm not sure, but hopefully that was not accurate and that they still are open negotiations because there is no path forward in Ukraine. There is no victory for Ukraine in this war. Uh, there's no real victory, I think, for Russia in this war. Uh, I think they are able to achieve the limited, uh, the limited objectives that they have of taking the East uh, and destroying or, or, or uh, you know, destroying Ukraine's army to a certain level. Uh, but outside of that, I don't think they have the capacity to conquer the whole country. And I don't think they want to because I don't think they want to get involved in an occupation. I think they want control of the East to include like a corridor connecting Donbass to Crimea. And I think that a stalemate will settle in and it will be an ugly, ugly and cruel, uh, low intensity conflict dominated by artillery and missile strikes. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm afraid that's where it's heading unless a ceasefire uh, is enacted and unless negotiations occur and there's a negotiated settlement to end it. Uh, you know, the, the idea of continuing to push forward with the war, the hoping that Ukraine is somehow going to win, that hoping some type of uh, a deus ex machina is going to occur, that something is going to cause, uh, a, 
you know, an act of nature, act of God is going to occur and Russia is going to crumble. Uh, all you're doing then is just sending Ukrainians to their deaths based on those hopes. And the idea of fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian is incredibly repulsive. Uh, and so when you see that there is no possibility for Ukraine winning or a very, very, very slight, you know, almost no possibility. Um, how do you then continue forward with that, with the knowledge that you are just sending thousands and thousands of Ukrainians to their death to achieve what? So that you can domestically say you've stood up to Russia so that you can say that, you know, so you can try and preserve your rules based order, try and preserve your your fading and, and failing and diminishing hegemony and, uh, you know, try and preserve that unipolar world that you've had. You know, so I, I think that's what we're looking at. Or it issues arrest warrants for Putin and other Russian officials. Maybe they're waiting to see if his cancer. <laughs> Maybe. Ah, Sarah says, hey, the International Criminal Court, that's what the ICC stands for, has issued an arrest warrant against Putin for war crimes in Ukraine. When will the ICC issue an arrest warrant against Obama for war crimes in Libya, Syria, and Yemen, or against Bush for murdering over a billion innocent in Iraq? See, that's the obvious retort to that. And she did it well, so I'm showing it to you. But even that, okay, I could go, well, that's just different than the thing that's crazy is not even in that tweet. <laughs> like, what, the, the part I can't get past is we're not in it. Oh, so that, that's the whole thing. So the crazy thing is we don't even participate in this thing because here, show Jonathan Cook here. Uh, after the ICC issued an arrest warrant for Putin, it's only <clears throat> right for Russia to threaten to arrest its judges and seize their. He's their what? Their funds, you know, like the United States did when the ICC tried to investigate war crimes in Afghanistan. We should be consistent, shouldn't we? Because that's what the United States did when the ICC wanted to investigate the United States for war crimes. U.S. threatens to arrest the judges. Sounds like shit Trump would do. No, that's just what the United States does. I know this gets better, but I knew that we didn't belong to that court. I would bring up, but I didn't realize like how much we don't belong to it. <laughs> you know what I, mean? like, I love that. There it is. U.S. threatens to arrest the ICC judges if they pursue Americans for Afghanistan. So that's this. These are the conversations I would have with people who would try to tell me that Putin is a special kind of a thug. I'm like, you guys are just repeating propaganda. And look, I don't like Putin at all, but I will say we owe Saddam Hussein an apology. <laughs> Now that the ICC has issued an arrest warrant for Putin, it's worth recalling that in 2002, the United States signed the Hague Invasion Act into law. And what is the Hague, Hague Invasion Act? The law states that if any U.S. or U.S. allied official is charged with war crimes at the International Criminal Court, Now, I want to show this first video um, just solely on the issue of <laughs> how BS the ICC is. And to understand that the ICC is only under 60 countries and Russia and the United States is not a part of that. This is a big part. 
that you have to understand. Because I want people to see the inside out instead of what's black and white. You see on Twitter, you see on Facebook, you see all over, um, even with conversations with friends. Um, well, not my friends. <laughs> people that, you know, are on more of the uh, Putin, I would say, syndrome that it's all about focus on what this guy is doing and not accepting any uh, total nuance of what's happening. And if, in fact, what they are saying he's doing is, in fact, true. Um, this is uh, a misconception that is easily uh, bought because of how good the Western media is with painting the picture for you to not question, which I, for instance, think that it's not actually an effective way. Um, but when you go on for so long with lies and 24 seven, the lies will be, become true. And this is exactly what we're living in. Uh, this type of mindset of, instead of thinking for ourselves and researching so we can have a true educated opinion. We are automatically trusting into the establishments that led us into these dark course pass, passes uh, before of hurting people and over millions of people dead since World War II. Without all that being said, Putin has been um, offered an arrest warrant by the ICC on war crimes. Now, the war crimes that they are trying to say, if you look into your research, is uh, supposedly trafficking. Why does that not sound uh, actually logical uh, to people that have been actually listening to the war in Ukraine conflict and keeping an eye on everything besides watching what the Western media says? Because they are focusing on, from, from my full understanding and assessment of the Donbass region, uh, which is actually under control of uh, Russia because of what happened with the referendum voting where there was a unanimous big slide of vote towards exceeding from Ukraine and actually becoming Russian citizens. Now, the Western media will tell you that this is absolutely a fallacy. Um, but when you speak to actually Donbass, uh, Russia, Ukrainians, uh, or Ukrainians that live inside that region, they will tell you this is actually true, that they are a part of Russia. So a lot of the refugees, because this is a war area, this is an area where a lot of the heavy fighting is happening, and they're talking about on the scales of, which I talked about on Willie Bragg's uh, podcast, Willie Bragg's podcast, um, I talked about how they are saying that the estimates of human loss, which is true, Scott Ritter reported this, um, many journalists, um, Eva Vibart, everybody that has been over there have reported this, that this is a violent conflict that have lost so many lives. We're talking about over 300,000 at this point, just on the Ukrainian side, before we even count how many Russians are dead. Um, and a lot of these refugees are leaving. They are going to neighboring countries. They are coming here in the United States. And there is no talk about how the uh, Russia is actually taking in a huge amount of these families. And for some reason, people don't want to believe that. But Russia has always been a hub for a lot of immigrants, immigration and refugees. Um, so they are trying to bring up these false charges just off the pretense of that and saying that he is um, trafficking children, which is absolutely 
not true. Um, but it's going to be true to those who only see Putin as being the most evilest villain on the planet when you live in a government that has killed millions of people just so you can have bananas and gas prices and all this stuff. Exploitation. Uh, straight on uh, blatant imperialism. 900 bases around the world using the IMF to put a lot of countries in debts, even though they say that they have independence and sovereignty, but they are still under the behests of the United States, bullied by these loans. And then the contrast, they tried to say that China's doing the same thing to Africa, but that's a different story, and that's not the subject here at Matter. Um, the issue is with the ICC, is as we saw in the tweets, why do you think the U.S. is just so gun-ho to to like make sure that they don't ever charge an American because there are war crimes that we have done. There are things that we have done that, you know, Bush, but for instance, this indictment, uh, this warrant was actually issued during the anniversary of the Iraq uh, invasion where we have killed a million Iraqis under the Bush administration because Bush wanted to finish his father's business. It was a personal vendetta. Weapons of mass destruction. 9-11 was the perfect excuse. So the ICC can't even mention anything about him, but they are gun to ready to go after Putin. And this is where people that understand this under this knowledge sees the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy in these type of systems that try to claim that they are, you know, doing what's right for the people or what's right for humans as a, you know, because this is international. Um, but they have no issue with going after African leaders. And don't get me wrong, if there are war crimes that African leaders are doing, shit, if there are war crimes that any other person is doing, they should be put to justice. But the ones that are the leaders and the betrayers, the, the dealers of death, the dealers of death, I would like to call them, it seems that they are always not put to the accountability line. But you know, this is just all smoke and mirrors. This is to continue to build this narrative, even though as problematic the government of Ukraine is uh, since 2014, when the coup happened, which some people would like to call the Maidan revolution. I call it the Maidan coup. Um, there is no revolution that is a counter-revolution. When you kick out, oust, literally a democratic elected president, and you replace him with a man like Petro Poroshenko, who is literally an out neo-Nazi and has quotes that no one wants to, you know, look back and read of how he waged war against his own people in the Donbass when Donbass was with Ukraine and said that his children, this is a quote, and I'll probably paraphrasing. Well, matter of fact, I am paraphrasing. His children, the Ukrainian children, will go and to school and be educated. But the Russo Ukrainians and the Donbass would not because they'll be hiding in the basement. And why would they be hiding in their basement? Because the Ukrainian Kiev regime was shelling them for eight years and killed over 14,000 of them. But that type of loss, just like what happens with the Palestinians, is not taken seriously. That type of Russophobic rhetoric where they literally are taking languages and banning them, Russian languages. Their ship, Zelensky, is now and the Russian church. Um, they have Stefan Bandara as their leader. But all these things, as their leader, as their icon, but all these things is overlooked, even though Poland has mentioned this 24-7, that there's a Nazi 
uh, and sentiment there. It, the poet has every right to complain because they were the ones that dealt with it on a very, very violent scale. Over 40,000 Polish Jews were murdered by Stefan Bendora. So they have every right. And if anybody dispute that, that's a lie, then you are denying a part of history that you really, 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 really should know. So this is why I see it as a fallacy and a waste of time for the ICC, who doesn't even have jurisdiction in Russia to even uh, put an arrest on Putin. This is just to try to make Putin look like what the public of the Western world wants Putin to be viewed as. Same implications as any other leader that the U.S. has had problems with, that they chose to have problems with. It's funny how we can go around and dictate sovereignty and say these people are sovereign, but then attack other sovereign governments and give them reasons 24 seven on why they should be attacked. And foolishly, foolishly, foolishly get our public opinion just so gun ho and pro-war. It's, it's, it's really sickening. <clears throat> but that's not all of the time wasting that's happening. The Democrats, my former party, you know, they have a very, very strong obsession with Donald Trump, who is also a war criminal, just like every fucking Democrat that has been president. But unlike these sitting U.S. presidents, you have never seen to this type of level the obsessedness and just to get this man locked up for something. It is literally on a scale that, you know, I am very surprised by. I try to look back into history to see have we ever tried to pursue a former president the way that we were seeing that Donald Trump is being uh, pursued. They tried on the Russia bot shit. That failed. They shouldn't even tried the Russian bot shit to be serious. They tried on they tried on um what was the thing? The Stormy Daniels thing. And now this is coming back again. They're coming back with this again. They tried so many ways and they failed. They failed because they're not actually trying him for things they should be trying him for. But they're trying him on things that they think they could get him for. They're coming after his kids, all this stuff. And as much as I hate Trump, and I am not a fan of Trump, uh, but I am not someone to just ignore that this is clearly BS. And it's going to remain being BS. Because the more they keep doing this, when are the public going to keep saying that this is a waste of time? When is the public going to continue to buy this? And I want the public to not buy this. I really don't. I mean... It has been canceled for the day, and uh, this is what sources are telling Fox News. The Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's office has canceled the grand jury meeting that was scheduled to take place today as former President Donald Trump faces a possible criminal indictment over alleged hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels back in 2016. Uh, two sources are telling Fox News. Uh, the grand jurors were notified 
notified this morning and were put on standby for tomorrow, one of the sources have uh, told Fox News. So this has been just a really, really interesting week when it comes to Donald Trump. Let's back up. Let's go out to Saturday morning when he put on his own truth social that he would be arrested on Tuesday. Tuesday come, no arrest made there. Then there was uh, some reporting that would happen today. He would be indicted and uh, an arrest could happen sometime next week. Now he's not going to be indicted today either. So while uh, we wait and see what is going to happen next here with this grand jury, obviously uh, we've been hearing a lot of pressure that is being mounted on uh, the, the New York DA there, Al Alvin Bragg. So we'll continue to follow it for you every step of the way right here on Live Now from Fox. But a major breaking news story there as the grand jury canceled for today. And we will continue to wait here for the very latest right here on Live Now from Fox. Want to go out to some breaking news here. Now, I'm very, very um, not surprised how they are being very hesitant on making the arrest. Because the truth of the matter is they should never announce this in the fucking first place if they didn't really have anything. And you know they didn't have anything because they haven't made the arrest yet. This is just more dumb shit to waste time on the news. And the Dems have a very strong vendetta against Trump, just like every neocon has a strong vendetta against Trump. And what is, what is that vendetta? It's not because of what we think. Oh, no, the Dems doesn't give a goddamn about Stormy Daniels. If they did give a goddamn about Stormy Daniels, maybe they'll give a goddamn about Tara Reid as well, too. Or maybe they give a goddamn about Monica Lewinsky. Or, or, or do you see where, where with all these women that are harmed? By these fucking demic, but no one ever said anything about it. Always, it's always just brushed under the rug, brushed under the rug. So I'm not buying that one bit that the Democrats actually give a damn about Stormy Daniels, and I'm not buying that one bit that the Democrats actually give a damn about Trump giving hush money to Stormy Daniels. This is just something that they want to continue to do to try to get him on whatever they can, so he doesn't run. This is what it's about. I agree with what the Mexican president said. The Mexican president literally said that in his speech while he was also explaining that Mexico is an independent country and it's not to be dictated by the United States. But that's a different story in a different video. So this is why I don't you see we have Roland Martin on um, independent black star um, black uh, news uh, channel 24 seven on YouTube. Uh, which is I admire and love as a black man seeing that we are able to have our own uh, press 24-7. But my issue is that sometimes Roland Martin likes to blame black people for, you know, we're not voting enough. And then also the issue also with how much he's obsessed with Trump. And I feel like that is ruining the integrity of his also uh, journalism. But he's been in the game for a long time and I seem like an amateur and I'm not a journalist. I'm a podcaster. So it's totally different lanes, but he was just like, yes, they're going to get him. You made a segment before about that before my guy, <laughs> when they try to get it with something else. It, did they get him? No, he's not even arrested yet. They said it was going to be uh Wednesday, Wednesday pass. They said they're going to do it next week. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. My guess is that, it's not going to happen, and they are wasting your time and everybody's time on this issue. Just leave the man alone and let him run. 
And if you think you could be him, get somebody in there that could be him. Okay? You guys won last time. You got fucking lucky. Congratulations. You still do the same shit, the same war crime shit that every other fucking predecessor before you did. It's not like you're really doing something out here that's changing things. You just want your status quo to remain the status quo and no actors that can expose the status quo. But that's my thoughts. Um, and my thoughts are my own. So I'll thank everybody out there for listening to me. And if you enjoyed the content that you're hearing, please like and share, subscribe. Um, the link will be in the description. And I hope everyone have a nice day. Hey, everyone. If you like the content that you're hearing, uh, please support the show. Uh, we have subscriptions up right now for a monthly dollar a month or up to whatever donation you feel uh, comfortable with. And also, you can hit my link bar, which is in uh, the description of the show, uh, to send me donations for Venmo and Cash App. And all this goes into bringing in better quality and also better content. So thank you. Have a good